Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone, depending on where you're joining us from. I am Sara Pantoliano. I'm the chief executive at ODI. For those who don't know us, don't know ODI, we are a dynamic global think tank that aims to inspire people to act on injustice and inequality through collaborative research and ideas. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's multilingual high-level dialogue, which will be in English with simultaneous translation into Russian. So for those of you who would like to listen in Russian, just select the relevant option on your Zoom menu. So if, this dialogue takes place in the context of the Global Week on Justice, and it really gives me great pleasure to have the privilege of chairing you know, this event. The event is the public inauguration of the Working Group on Customary and Informal Justice and the SDG 16 Plus, of which ODI is a funding member. Now, you're all aware that more than 5 billion people live outside the protection of the law and are actually excluding from shaping it. And as a result, they often deny their rights, they're marginalized, they're displaced from their land, um, they're subject to violence without remedy. And we know that you know, the experience of injustice is very often a key conflict driver. So to try and tackle this global justice gap, the 2030 agenda has committed all UN member states to ensure equal access to justice for all. And this is articulated in SDG 16 on peaceful justice and inclusive societies. But if you really want to fulfill the promise of SDG 16 plus, I think it is even more imperative that the global justice community engages effectively in customary and informal justice, or CIJ, as we'll be referring to it in the course of this webinar for short. And I think the case for engaging in these systems is very clear. You know, the majority of justice seekers resolve their disputes over land, over water, over family relations, over all sorts of issues, and claim their rights outside of the formal justice system. Um, this is very often the first resort. And it's often also the only option they have, because for many people, CIJ systems you know, prevail in regulating their access to land, water, natural resources, regulating family relations. So it is for these very reasons that the working group was funded last year. Um, it was funded by a collective of justice stakeholders who you know, felt very strongly um, that it was important to recognize the importance of better taking into account customary and informal systems. This has now become a global multi-stakeholder coalitions of more than 60 organizations and individuals. Um, that includes po senior policymakers, activists, thought leaders, experts, all really invested in closing the global justice gap. The group has come together around you know, a shared vision you know, of a world in which all people have equal access to justice, but justice that meets their needs. Of course, provided that you know, systems are inclusive, are responsive, are effective, and are consistent with human rights norms and standards. So it is with this great vision in mind that you know, the objective of the working group is to better understand the role of customary and informal justice, and then you know, build the momentum towards a sustained right-based engagement with customary and informal justice actors. The, the aim of the working group really is to create an enabling policy environment for governments, for development partners, for civil society, so that they can engage effectively with customer and informal justice actors and try and build more inclusive justice systems. And importantly, I think the working group takes people's lived experience of how they access justice, how they seek protection and remedies as the starting point 
to, to consider the complexities of justice ecosystems, which are specific to, to you know, the, each context political history. The working group is actually really upfront about the challenges that are you know, associated with customary and informal justice. Um, they can be often socially conservative, can reinforce status quo power dynamics, they can violate human rights, and that is especially true for women, girls, and other marginalized groups. But rightly, the working group underlines that these criticisms are valid and potentially true for all justice providers, for the statutory, formal systems, and of course, the customer and informal ones. What the working group has done so far is put together an action plan, and one that is leading to the second SDG summit in 2023, where the aim of the working group is to put CIJ at the center of the global justice agenda. The activities of the action plan really consist on building a network of the working group itself to include, to include diverse stakeholders and actually to foster peer learning that then can you know, to lead to joint action. The group is also going to focus on research collaboration you know, to try and strengthen the case for engaging with the reality of CIJ and identify the best ways to do so. And finally, the working group will engage in policy advocacy or advocacy. And the centerpiece of this advocacy will be a process of consultation, a process of dialogue that will result in a final report with you know, key recommendations to be showcased at the um, SDG Summit in September 2023. So the reason why we have convened this dialogue today is because it is imperative to acknowledge the role that customary and informal justice systems plays in efforts to address, to address the global justice gap. And I'm honored to be joined by nine incredible speakers, amongst whom there are senior policymakers, justice providers, commentators, advocates, supporters, who will help us navi navigate the topic by sharing their experiences and perspectives. Um, we will start by giving um, a virtual floor to the Honorable Manuel da Costa, Minister of Justice of Timor-Leste. Unfortunately, the minister is you know, um, recovering from illness, so we will have Habib Mayar, the Deputy Secretary General of the G7 Plus Secretariat, reading his speech. Um, we'll then be joined by uh, Jamesina Esse-King, Sierra Leone Court of Appeal Judge and ICJ Commissioner. Um, we are also, also with us is Sarah Hossein, Advocate and Supreme Court of the Supreme Court of Bangladesh and Honorary Executive Director of the Bangladesh Legal Aid and Services Trust. Um, we also have Zamira Mamakeva, the Chairwoman of the Association of the Aksakal Courts and a member of the Aksakal Court in Bishkek. Um, Zamira will speak in Russian, but there will be English translation available for, uh, for those who are not following in Russian. Um, we are also joined by Juan Carlos Botero, Associate Prof Professor at the Pontifica Universidad Javeriana and former Executive Director at the World, World Justice Project. Um, also with us is Vicky Tali Corpuz, the Executive Director of the Tebba Foundation and former UN Special Rapporteur on the rights of indigenous people. Um, we'll then go to Atieno Odiambo, the director of the Legal Empowerment Fund, the Global Fund for Human Rights. Um, and I'm delighted that he's also with, uh, with us, uh, a co-member of the advisory group of the UN Peace Building Fund, uh, Mariette Schurman, who is the director of the Stabilization and Humanitarian Affairs at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands. And last but not least, um, we will conclude um, our, our dialogue, giving the floor to Jan Beagle, the director of IDLO, who will deliver some closing remarks. But let's get started. The discussion will focus today on four key areas. First, how we can better understand 
the full justice ecosystems in all contexts. Second, what can this customary and informal system deliver you know, in terms of access to justice in ways that upholds human rights? And what are innovative examples of political and legal change processes that integrate customary justice and indigenous rights to enhance better access to justice? And finally, how can the global justice community better support engagement with CIJ actors to address the global justice gap? Before we get started, just to mention that I will be taking questions from the audience, so please do use the Q&A functionality that you can, say, you can see on the Zoom chat, on the Zoom panel, to write, to write questions for the panel. There is also chat functionality, and I really encourage you to share ideas, resources, engage in the conversation with each other um, here. But also, let's take the conversation out there on Twitter. Um, please tweet, you know, live tweet the, what, we, what you're hearing, what resonates with you, you know, engage with the discussions on Twitter by using the hashtag um, SDG16+. But now, without further ado, I would like to, to give the floor to um, Habib Mayar, who will be speaking on behalf of Minister Manuel da Costa. Um, Habib, uh, the floor is with you. Um, thank you, Ms. Chairman. Um, this is an honor to read out the minister's statement, um, who had gratefully recorded his message, but due to connection problem, it could not be sent. Uh, this is what we call fragility, and this is what we live in. But it's an honor. Uh, the statement of Min Minister Manuel da Costa, Minister of Justice of Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste. Ms. Chairman, Excellency, ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to be here today at this useful dialogue and share experience of Timor-Leste. Access to quick justice is an important pillar of lasting peace and stability in countries such as those in G7+. It's included in the strategic development plan of Timor-Leste. Customary justice institutions have played a crucial role in Timor-Leste. The government is committed to work with community leaders and how best to attain the goal of access to justice for all. Timor-Leste is an independent and unitary sovereign democracy based on the rule of law, the will of the people, and respect for human dignity. The Constitution of Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste recognizes fundamental human rights, in particular those foreseen in international legal documents, establishes the general operating principles of rule of law, state and the system of justice and defines its institutions and their respective powers. The section two, four of constitution provides that the state shall recognize and value the norms and customs of Timor-Leste and are not contrary to the constitution and to any legislating, legislation dealing specifically with customary law. However, no specific legislation dealing with customary law has been enacted. Traditional legal practices in Timor-Leste usually imbued with ancestral religious beliefs are inherent to systems in which kinship concepts regulate most aspects of everyday life. Conflict resolution and punishment of crimes are part of this. For Timor-Leste, for Timorese customary practice are an integral part of everyday life and play a central role in resolving disputes between individuals and communities, such as land disputes, conflict between communities, and natural resource management. These practices focus on maintaining community and environmental harmony, in contrast to the formal justice system, which is 
perpetrator focused. Ladies and gentlemen, to date, there is no comprehensive legislation regulating the informal justice sector in the proposal of law to regulate the customary law still in discussion. However, it is not entirely unregulated by Timurese law. Some existing laws have a bearing on legality in effect of local justice mechanisms. As mentioned above, the constitution recognizes and values the normal norms and customs of Timorese that are not contrary with it. In July 2016, a new Suku law, law number 92016 was enacted. It addresses some of these uh, deficiencies. It provides that duties of Sukus include to promote the solution to litigation occurring within the continuity of or between alias in Suku, chief Shefidik Sukus, which means chief of Sukus, have the contemporary the competency to intervene whenever requested in the mediation of conflicts or disputes between community members, as well as between the LDS and the Suku nonetheless. However, Shifidik Suku are also required to inform the police about facts which can constitute a crime. The most detailed legal framework relevant to the informal I think we have lost Habib. Let's see if we can recover the audio quickly. Um, I maybe we can just carry on and move to Jensina, and then if we are able to reconnect uh, with Habib, we'll, we'll, we can hear the second part of the speech. Uh, but I was actually really, um, you know, I was taking notes of how well, you know, Minister Da Costa was um, describing how integrated systems can work and sharing the experience of Timor-Leste in, you know, so, so, so showing the um, effectiveness of how they can, you know, really um, live together. So actually, I want to ask Jamesina about that because that is also the case in Sierra Leone, isn't it? I mean, I think there are, you know, the former and CIJ systems are often thought to be in competition, but actually they can also be, you know, quite well integrated. So, Jamesina, can you share the experience from Sierra Leone? And then if you're able to, we go back to, to Habib. Thank you very much. And I'm very pleased to be part of this discussion. Indeed, in Sierra Leone, we have the formal courts and we have customary and informal systems, but primarily I want to focus on our local courts because the local courts, they are in every chiefdom in the provinces and they serve over 70% of the population. And so in order to have better cooperation and coherence between these customary justice systems, that's the local courts and the formal justice system, in 2011, uh, an act was passed called the Local Courts Act, which replaced the 1963 Act. And this Act effectively brought the administration of these local courts directly under the judiciary as envisaged by the 1991 Constitution. And this effort was also to address the justice gap whilst recognizing the vital role local courts play in the delivery of justice. It was also part of reforms after our 11 years of conflict with injustice been identified as one of the main drivers of the conflict. 
And so we had this change and customary laws, which were which applied in customary courts, the local courts, were reviewed to address issues of discrimination and violence and against women and local courts personnel and communities were trained on the rule of law and human rights. And with a lot of awareness raising, sensitization of procedures and systems in local and traditional courts, a lot has happened and we now have the courts working together. There are challenges which I will refer to. Well, I want to highlight an area of um, violations affecting women like rape. In the past, local courts would deal with it, but right now there's a protocol they cannot deal with issues like rape or very serious crimes. Immediately these um, uh, matters are brought to the local court, it is sent to the high court or it is sent to the police. So while lawyers cannot appear for litigants in local courts, you have customary law officers with legal background and they advise local courts in matters of law and organization, they support research and they assist in training of personnel in these courts. You also have paralegals who are also in these courts providing services to litigants. I must say that local courts are not in competition with formal courts as their administration and jurisdiction are different and they are clearly set out in the law. Their jurisdiction is limited only to the local area where they are located. They apply only customary laws that are not inconsistent with natural justice, equity and good conscience or any other statutory law. They do not deal with very serious criminal offenses such as rape as I had highlighted and they only deal with certain civil actions clearly spelled out in this Local Court Act of 2011. They can impose fines or sentence to imprisonment within limits specified in the law. And so you ask yourself, what if they go out? If they go out of their judicial powers, it is an offense and they can be prosecuted. So the members of the local court, the chairman, vice chairman, and other members, they are appointed by the chief justice. So you see the link between them and the formal court. They are appointed by the chief justice in consultation with the Judicial and Legal Service Commission, and also advised by local court service committees. Their terms and conditions are defined by the Judicial and Legal Service Commission, and all the expenses of these local courts are covered from the consolidated fund. Local courts, they work closely with the formal courts. They provide monthly returns to the magistrate of the district and the magistrate is from the formal courts. They can also, their proceedings can be reviewed by customary law officers when there's an allegation of miscarriage of justice or an error of law. But besides the review by a customary law officer, there are also appeals from local courts to the district appeal courts, which consists of magistrates of the district sitting with two assessors. And then even from the magistrate's decision, there's an appeal to a local appeals division of the high court comprising of a high court judge who sits with two assessors. So formal courts, when local and um, customary matters are brought before it, they can stop these proceedings in the high court or magistrate court and refer. So formal courts also refer matters to the local courts. So in, in effect, the high court cannot deal with issues such as land, that is governed by customary law, administration of estates of persons under customary law, as these fall within the jurisdiction of local courts. There are challenges as well in the local courts. They are not as well organized as the formal courts and they lack the resources. They lack, um, because government does not provide enough 
resources for these cuts to run effectively. And they need continuous, there's need for continuous training of the officials of this court. Currently, we have training ongoing by the judiciary of local personnel of these courts um, supported by OSIWA, which is not government, but an, an independent um, organization. But I must say in closing that efforts towards coherence, cooperation and alignment with formal courts have to be managed well so that the procedures and practices of local courts do not lose that flexibility, accessibility, swiftness, community ownership, cultural and environmental relevance in providing remedies to citizens. And this is because the formal courts are overburdened with cases. And it is only recently that the judiciary succeeded to have resident high court judges in all districts of the country. There are also lots of delays in the formal system leading to overcrowding of prisons and litigation in formal courts are expensive. It's very expensive. To conclude, formal and customary and informal justice system can work very well together in achieving the common goal of providing justice for its citizens. They are not in competition as they complement each other. Local courts are vital in closing that justice gap and increasing access to justice, particularly in the rural areas where it has its primary area of operation. Access to quality and inclusive justice through local courts is therefore crucial for sustaining peace coming from a war-torn country for sustaining development as we are looking forward to having development, good governance, respect for human rights, and even for addressing poverty. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Jamesia. That was such a clear account of how you, know, you can make uh, really the, the best of the, this division of labor and having well-defined links and synergies between the two sides. I thought that added a lot of very tangible, um, you know, sort of um, knowledge of how it works in Sierra Leone. And I'm sure we'll hear in the rest of the discussion also in other contexts. Now we've lost a bit. We can't <laughs> recover the line with Timor Leste. So what I hope we can do in the course of uh, um, of the dialogue is to retrieve the speech from Insta da Costa and you know, include it in the chat so that people can uh, at least have a chance to finish reading his remarks. Um, but let me go to Sarah, to Sarah Hossein. Sarah, Bangladesh has a very vibrant justice ecosystem. You know, it goes from the former justice system to the customary shalish, you know, to um, active paralegals. Can you tell us a little bit of how civil society organizations in particular in Bangladesh have worked in collaboration with customary and informal justice systems really to reinvent them in ways that you know, can provide protection for human rights, you know, for fairness, for equality. And, and I would also like to ask you to reflect on what you think this you know, tells us in terms of you know, the possibility of a productive engagement with the customer and informal justice. Sure, thanks very much. I mean, I think I should speak a bit about the experience of Shalish, the traditional or customary justice mechanism in Bangladesh, which has been present since pre-colonial times, which allows for informal dispute resolution in the community. It's interesting that it's common across many communities, irrespective of religion or ethnicity, although it has different names in different contexts. What's important about the Shalish is it's a process that's held within the community and by community members. Of course, there are real issues in the sense that often the Shalish traditionally is conducted by older men, often with very conservative views, not inclusive in any way at all. But given, even given that limitation, 
and very differently, I think, from my previous speaker. Shalish is such, of course, not recognized explicitly by any kind of statute or formal law, but the process of informal dispute resolution, where the parties agree to the process and outcomes, where it doesn't contradict any recognized right or applicable law, for example, by imposing degrading punishments, is something that could be built on. And this was something that was recognized and recognized very early on in Bangladesh's history. So soon after our independence, out of conflict, out of a period of a liberation struggle, following a genocide in 1971, in the early 70s, the first pioneering organization, a local grassroots organization run by a, a lawyer, a trained lawyer, who saw that the, the formal system was not something that was working for people. All of the obstructions of distance, cost, time, language, delay, implementation gaps. They reinvent, in that context, one, one organization, the Madaripur Legal Aid Association, reinvented Shalish in two contexts, within the community and within civil society spaces. And, and this then became adopted by a whole host of civil society organizations, Bangladesh. Traditions. So training mediators and applicable laws and available remedies, skills of documentation and the process of mediation. And alongside providing a new avenue for justice, also ensuring that there were people in the community to inform about this process that was available through the, exactly the people we now know as paralegals. The results have been extraordinary. I mean, saving millions in terms of the costs involved in the process of seeking justice and months and years of time in people's lives and ensuring many of them safety and security in the process. It's also been interesting to see how these processes have adapted to technology more quickly sometimes than formal systems. We've seen how during COVID, we've had informal dispute resolution online through using low-tech systems, even like, like online mobile conference calls with three parties to try and resolve a dispute. We've also seen how these systems have adapted. Um, scholars are working on this now, looking at how, for example, WhatsApp messages, TikTok videos, uh, Facebook messages are being used as evidence in community dispute resolution processes in a way that's not even possible in the formal courts. And these are coming up in, in family disputes and so on and helping to and being taken account of and facilitating solutions. So I think what's interesting about community re dispute resolution in this restructured, reinvented format is its adaptability and its flexibility. So I think some of these progressive practices in Shailish can be very useful in the way we think about how we rethink the formal system as well and how we make it more inclusive for women and particularly for vulnerable groups. In addition to the, the this reinvention of Shailish, I think also looking at customary systems, particularly amongst indigenous groups, has been another way for us to learn to think differently about, about our understanding of how to even further equality. For some indigenous groups that have matrilineal, in the matrilineal communities, we've seen how their laws actually have enabled rights to be accessed, which are not available under statute or under, under other laws in our system. And what does this tell us about the possibility of engaging with community systems? What, what has our experience taught us? I think one of them is, of course, that we have to be aware, we have to be cautious, there have to be caveats in place. We need to understand ways in which community justice systems do and can restrict women's rights and the rights of the more powerless. But for a productive engagement, we have to take these issues firmly on board, not sideline them, not gloss them over, not deprioritize them saying, you know, cost and convenience are more important factors. Having taken that on board, I think we also need to think more critically about how courts can in practice and reality 
how they do in fact replicate the exclusions that we see in customer and community spaces, that they're not necessarily an idealistic alternative. Once we recognize that, then we need to look at what works and what doesn't. And remember that justice systems need to be open to all. I mean, if we look at the, the working papers that have come out of the group on customary informal justice, we can see the vast numbers of people who are simply excluded from the system, the 5 billion who don't access justice at all. If you look at the formal system, we know that in Bangladesh, for example, 2% of women who experience violence even ever seek a kind of any kind of remedy. They can't get to the formal justice system. So they may not have perfect solutions in those situations through the informal system, but they can get there. And I think that point of access is absolutely critical for us to understand that it's about opening a door and then it's about refashioning what's inside the room. And I think we are in, in the process to do that. Um, so finally, I think what we need to think about as we, as we engage and as we critically and, and productively and constructively engage, we have to be aware that formal and informal systems do interact, they do interconnect. Steps forward in one can enable forward movement in another. So it's not an either or solution. It's not you have formal courts and that's where you invest everything or you have customary systems you do away with formal courts. We have to look at what those productive relationships are about and how we can make them work. And for that, I think working again with a, in a holistic ecosystem, not only with lawyers, courts and judges, police and state mechanisms, but also critically with paralegal, with grassroots activists who are working directly with communities. That's the way in which we can move forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was um, really clear, and I couldn't agree more. That it's really important to make sure that we work, you know, very closely um, with you know communities to really make sure that these systems are inclusive. Um, with that, I'd like to go to Justice Namakeva, you know, and ask her: In Kyrgyzstan, how do you think ordinary and informal systems can, you know, work together to ensure human rights in the administration of justice? A bit following from what Sarah was saying from Bangladesh. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a very good question. And uh, let me tell you that in Kyrgyzstan, uh, we do have uh, justice, both formal, formal administration of justice and uh, taking into consideration that it takes a lot of time. It's very difficult to administer justice due to the territory. We have a an alternative form, and that is the courts of Aksakal, so courts of elders. And they play a very important role in administration of justice, and they deal with root causes. And a lot of representatives of uh, in Kyrgyzstan, the law was signed, and now the number of <clears throat> Aksakal or elder courts, it's about four, 1,380 people are involved. It's the most uh, accessible mechanism in order to settle disputes, some small domestic disputes, and also to settle disputes. It's very important that we do carry out prophylactic work and educational and awareness. Wise men, Aksakal, so elders, they are able to resolve the issues and that takes off the load, the burden of formal courts. That is why uh, there are some advantages if we compare it to the formal system of justice. For instance, it is free for everyone. 
also there are no very strict or rigid procedures or proceedings and we also have procedure of settlement disputes we have a wide range of social regulating factors and the, the law for us is uh, the constitution of Kyrgyz Republic and uh, it was granted for everyone. The citizens have the right to establish Aksakal or elder courts. And uh, in our law, uh, the uh, Aksakal courts are mandated. It's a public uh, body, it's a public authority and they are independent. They also have the right to control the execution most of the courts have a lot of rights. So all family issues, all property issues, and also administrative responsibilities, civic uh, cases. We also have a, a special service and they, uh, they uh, have the right to, uh, to oversee the execution of, uh, and also they have uh, the right to uh, deal with uh, uh, to penalize people to deal with uh, different fines and also to try to settle disputes between the sides. Uh, social conflicts are very important to settle. Punishment is the very, very extreme uh, rule for us. And we, what we are trying, what we are looking to do is to be able to settle disputes. Uh, in 10 days, uh, the parties can uh, appeal the decision of the elder court, exocal court. So our main job is to settle disputes and we base our work on the uh, custom law and custom law does not contradict our formal law. And what we do, we uh, always report our results to our founders, co-founders. We use mediation a lot, and uh, it's very often we uh, can differ from the uh, state uh, judges because state judges uh, have to base their resolution, their decision only on state, on only on codified law. But we can settle the disputes. We try to use equity. We try to use our tradition, tradition of the people who live in Kyrgyzstan, but they should not contradict the law. We are trying to find justice, fairness, and we are trying to use evidence. It's very important with, resp with respect to human rights. Uh, when the courts cannot do anything with the parties, so we based on the law so we can help uh, common citizens to find the uh, truth to find protection so we do not compete i would say that we supplement we add to the state courts and we think that uh, in our uh, research, in our National uh, Research Institute, this is very important. The existence of alternative uh, system, alternate system is very impor important and it is very positive. It has positive influence. That's my system, the system that I work in and that's how we work, our Aksakal or our elder courts. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zamira. Again, some really tangible um, examples of how you know these 
the, the customer and informal system um, integrates and reinforces, you know, the formal and actually how they reinforce each other and they, you know, sort of mutually um, sort of uh, supportive. And I think that is coming out really strongly from this discussion. I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll hear even more reinforcement from Juan Carlos because actually, sorry, go ahead. Did you want to add something, Zamira? I just wanted to add that we very, very closely uh, interact with our law enforcement and our uh, formal courts, and we help uh, to involve, to get our elders, our axicals involved in carrying out of justice. We have a new constitution quite recently, and uh, what we did in in the new constitution, we uh, actually introduced funding because they all were volunteers, but now with new law that is mandated by the constitution, uh, I guess that our life will be easier. We, we are going to get funding. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Now that, that's really great to hear. And I was saying we can you know, now go to the experience of Latin America that I think, you know, is with Juan Carlos, I come to you to hear more because Latin America has actually been, you know, a bit at the forefront of some really innovative legal and, and political developments um, with customary justice and indigenous rights being negotiated into constitutional text and new political arrangements. But you know, actually also to align with human rights and gender equality principles. So can you add to the richness of the details that we've been hearing so far, you know, from Sierra Leone, Kyrgyzstan, Bangladesh, and Timor Leste? Well, Sarah, thank you first for having me and thank you for the previous speakers for this very interesting dialogue. First, as a matter of context, when you think on, for instance, Malawi, they have like two dozen judges and uh, 10,000 chiefs. So justice is basically the informal customer system, that's justice in the land, except for the small minority. If you think on Liberia, they have like 100 judges and, and, and thousands of chiefs. So the same is, that's not the case in Latin America. And you think in Latin America, the, the ethnic divide between mestizo and indigenous population after 500 years of, of, of European conquest, um, is, is a minority of the population. In Bolivia, maybe 20, 30%, but it is mostly 2, 3, 4% throughout Latin America. So we are dealing with minority rights. And uh, in terms of the constitutional recognition of these rights, there's different models. For instance, just to mention three, in Argentina, where there's only 2% of indigenous populations, uh, they have adopted what we call a multicultural model of recognition. In Colombia, where you have between 10% of minorities between indigenous and, and Afro-Colombians, you have a pluricultural model. And in Bolivia, where indigenous communities are very significant part of the population, you have a plurinational model. Now, what does this different mean? This different means different degrees in which the system recognizes the autonomy of the indigenous communities in dealing with their own issues. And so it's a matter both of jurisdiction and it's also a matter of, of, of applicable law. Uh, now, very briefly, moving to what does the taxonomy mean from the point of view of the indigenous communities? So when you look at it from the, let's say, Western perspective or 
a majoritarian view perspective in the population, which we basically have a civil law system in most countries in Latin America, few Jamaica have common law systems, but basically it's a civil law system. Um, indigenous communities have a special jurisdiction where they resolve their disputes. But most disputes go eventually to the Supreme Court and the system is integrated, unified through the um, Western uh, dispute resolution mechanisms. When you see it from the point of view of the indigenous communities themselves though, the situation is different because uh, what they perceive is that the system, although it recognizes their autonomy, when the test comes to happen, the understanding of a Western definition of human rights is imposed on them. Very much in the same way that in, for instance, in the context of Liberia, the chiefs apply sassywood, which is a trial by ordeal, is a poison that, a concussion that people have to drink. And this is perceived as unacceptable from the point of view of the Western understanding of human rights. For them, it's a millenary tradition, which is also present, of course, in Sierra Leone and many other countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. We have in Colombia alone, we have more than a hundred different indigenous communities. And each one of them have different customary system of dispute resolution. Of course, they group in different ways and, and uh, we, we, we could have a taxonomy of five or six different categories of dispute resolution among them. But at the end of the day, the question becomes, how do we, with, to what level do we integrate the Western understanding or the global understanding, depends on where you stand from, of human rights based on the Universal Declaration, for instance, and SDG 16, with their own cultural understanding of that, and to what extent this cultural understanding is an excuse to simply perpetrate, perpetrate patterns of mm, male dominance and uh, uh, practices that may not be aligned with a more global understanding of justice. Uh, this challenge has, as I mentioned, 120 different colors in each one of the countries. Uh, the constitutional recognition and the dialogue, to conclude, is not a one step, but it's a moving forward, case by case, in which you start to adapt to a point where mutual understanding and recognition becomes mm, a fair ground of acceptance, mutual acceptance among different groups. That I conclude. Thank you so much, Carlos. That was yeah, really uh, such an important point because it was, it's at the heart of the challenge. You know how we really try and reconcile. You know, as you put it, how these cultural understandings of uh, indigenous communities can coexist with global understanding of justice. Uh, pretty much rooted in Western culture and history. And, and I think I want to come to Vicky on that. Because Vicky, you've obviously been the UN Special Rapporteur on Rights of Indigenous People. Um, so it'd be useful to hear your reflections on what role is there for Indigenous justice you know, in, in achieving access to justice um, for all and how you know, these tensions that Juan Carlos was also um, highlighting can, you know, can be better addressed. You're on mute, Vicky. Can you please unmute? 
Okay. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. And I'd like to thank the ODI for organizing this event because many of the things that I have heard so far resonate with the thinking and the experiences that I have seen, no? both in my role, of course, as an, an Indigenous activist, but also when I did my mandate as the UN Special Rapporteur. Uh, if you uh, you may know that one of the key demands of indigenous peoples when they were when we were negotiating the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples is the right of indigenous peoples to use their own governance systems and justice systems no so article 4 of the declaration has uh, stated clearly that indigenous peoples have the right to use their own legal economic and political institutions. You know, and Article 34 uh, says that indigenous peoples have the right to develop and strengthen their own institutions, which includes the justice systems if, uh, if these apply. And it, it should be in accordance with international human rights law. No, so clearly, uh, when we were uh, negotiating the declaration, it was always clear in our minds that that the our own justice systems should not be in violation of uh, international uh, human rights law because uh, because there is this. Uh, belief, right? There's like the dominant thinking in many societies that indigenous peoples are, you know, their systems are backward. These are not in accordance with uh, justice or human rights. And we dispute that. We say that actually many of the justice systems that we have, and most of the uh, issues, the disputes in, in our communities are actually settled by uh, indigenous justice systems. And I've seen this everywhere I go, you know, in Ecuador, yeah, even in Bolivia, that there are indigenous justice systems and there are justice authorities who are well respected by the uh, by the indigenous peoples themselves. And uh, the extent, of course, into which uh, these are integrated into the formal system, it, this varies from country to country. In my country, in the Philippines, uh, this is one issue also that we have fought long for. And uh, in, in 1997, finally, an Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act came into being. And one of the articles of that uh, act uh, does recognize uh, the use and the practice of Indigenous peoples of their own customary laws and justice systems. No, And I think this is something that... Uh, that is a, a, a major improvement no? from where we were maybe uh, 20 years ago. No? And now uh, even the ICJ says that 80 to 90% of uh, disputes in, especially in fragile and conflict-ridden uh, communities, 80 to 90% of these cases are, are settled by, by customary justice systems. No, it's not the modern justice system that does that. And this is true even in our case in the Philippines, where we, of course, have a modern justice system. Uh, it's very difficult to access this, uh, this uh, uh, system, you know, uh, uh, as, uh, which, of course, is because of the expenses that are entailed. You have to hire lawyers, but also because of uh, the language. No, uh, interpretation is a very basic issue. You know, and, and, and in fact, many of the cases that have been heard in the in the Philippines on the, in, with regards to indigenous peoples is the fact that the courts cannot translate, you know, the, the into the language of indigenous peoples who don't speak any other language than their own. No, and of course, how can you access justice if that's the case in many countries? And that has been the case in many countries. No, uh, formal justice systems, of course, have this all written either in 
in the dominant language in the Philippines, it's English, not even in the national language. No? So that in itself is a big issue in the question of access to justice. And that's what indigenous peoples have been fighting for. That's why uh, when I talk to the indigenous justice authorities, one of the things that they are demanding is that indeed uh, they have the right. I mean, because there are cases that they cannot settle and they would, uh, they would pass this on to the justice system, but they would ask that interpretation should be provided, you no, know, both to their, uh, to their, uh, to the ones who have filed the cases, as well as, of course, the the judge, the justices, you no. Know? And I spoke to the Supreme Court justices, for instance, in Ecuador, and they are very much agree with that. They said that indeed, I mean, if we don't understand the cultural context of these people in their languages, we cannot really do anything. Uh, about the cases that are being brought to our attention. So I think those are just few of the issues that I've seen. Uh, I'm, I'm running out of time, but if there are some questions later on, uh, I can also deal with this. Just to say that indigenous justice systems are vibrant, uh, the customary laws are living laws, and this is what uh, brings a better peace and, uh, and security amongst indigenous peoples in many parts of the world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vicky. That was really powerful. I think the, the relevance of this customer and informal you know, justice systems to communities, to their lived experience, to you know, the cultural context is coming out really strongly from the discussion. And I actually have seen you know, quite a few comments in the chat also you know, stressing what all of you are saying about you know, the importance of these long-standing informal justice mechanisms, how many of them are pre-colonial, how they've actually demonstrated resilience and relevance throughout the pandemic. Um, all you know, really important points I encourage you to, um, to read because they really complement well the discussions we are having. And, and just to add that the speech from Minister Dacosta has also been added to the chat. Um, Atino, let me come to you. We've heard you know, so much that really makes such a strong case for taking better account of customary and informal justice. So how can the global justice community work better, take better account of CLJ to deliver on SDG 16.3? We can't hear you, Atiyah, I'm afraid. I don't know if it's the headphones. Or... You're not muted, but your voice is not coming through. Can you hear me now? Ah, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, thank, thank you very much, Sarah. Indeed, it's an honor to share my thoughts on customer and informal justice at this event. And actually, much of what I was going to say has been articulated by the previous speakers. So I'm merely reiterating some of the points that they have made. Um, you know, customer and informal justice uh, mechanisms hold great promise in enhanced access to justice. And the global justice community can better take account of and with CIJ by ins ensuring that formal legal systems and CIJ mechanisms can interact in a manner that is mutually reinforcing and focused on an, an effective system of justice. Of course, I say this with the recognition that the area of CIJ is a dynamic and difficult terrain that's, you know, replete with uh, competing approaches, different conceptions of justice, and different levels of operation. However, as has been said before, the reality is that in most countries in the global south, people use both formal and customary uh, informal justice mechanisms. Um, and these systems don't uh, operate in isolation. And they're therefore bound to influence each other, both in terms of process and outcomes. 
So the global justice community should recognize the relevance of CIJ for the following reasons. For example, you know, CIJ reflects the lived realities of communities um, and it increases access to justice for most of them. Um, CIJ is also a framework for expanding human rights and uh, uh, human autonomy. And this is because as a lived reality it changes and adapts to new circumstances, it can respond to legal changes and therefore adapts to human rights norms. Um, CIJ mechanisms are also a really important site for guaranteeing human rights by providing an easier and much more uh, affordable, more approachable and really importantly, uh, culturally and socially appropriate forums for individuals to access justice. Um, CIJ is also a mode for uh, doing justice differently and more effectively, and it accomplishes this in you know, a myriad of different ways. First and foremost, it's, uh, it's not adversarial, it's a form of restorative justice. And you know, restorative justice, which focuses really on rehabilitating offenders through uh, conciliation with victims and the community at large. The idea being that for justice to be served in a community, it must aid members of the society to rely on each other. Um, it also ensures a more, more social inclusion uh, since it's more participatory, you know, unlike formal court systems, CIJ mechanisms focus on maintaining social inclusion, which really brings about uh, cohesion. Um, and really importantly, CIJ mechanisms are more affordable because they are closely tied to the communities and are very are, are mostly institutionalized. Um, they're also very expeditious and uh, are less adversarial and incorporate more creative rem remedies. Uh, really, they are not a, a legal contest, but are really are part of a system of harmonious living. Of course, you know there are lots of critiques about uh, about CIJ. And you know, unlike uh, CIJ, like most uh, dispute resolution processes, do have uh, challenges. But however, because they are based on lived experiences, you know, CIJ allows for the development of alternative approaches and interpretations that will open space for challenges to cultural beliefs. So challenges to CIJ can you know, be mitigated, for example, by engaging CIJ through a robust human rights framework, uh, which really goes without saying that a human rights framework is you know, essential for the success of uh, CIJ. And it really brings about a balance between civic autonomy as well as human rights values. And also where there have been allegations of human rights violations within CIJ mechanisms, there, is, you know, there do exist the formal justice mechanisms and other state organs that can provide checks and balances and provide remedies for these violations. You know, I'll give an example you know, in Kenya where you know, we're just you know, starting off with this uh, alternative justice system mechanisms and you know, where the wheels of justice within the formal system moved very slowly. And the drafters of Kenya's uh, new constitution, when I call it new even though it was promulgated in 2010, but it's still new in my books, recognized the really important role of CIJ and revived the prominent place of African customary law and traditional systems of justice through Article 159.2c. And this article gives the judiciary um, the mandate to promote traditional methods of dispute resolution, while at the same time subjecting those mechanisms to a human rights framework of the Bill of Rights. And six years later, the judiciary of Kenya under the then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Willie Mutunga, incorporated alternative justice mechanisms as a core strategy to deliver access to justice uh, to Kenyans. And at, the, at that time, I was uh, working for the, uh, for the then Chief Justice and an interesting 
aspect of the work that uh, we were doing at the judiciary was on the one hand, um, we, were, uh, we were working towards um, yeah, making sure that alternative justice mechanisms were part and parcel and were recognized by the judiciary and promoted by the judiciary. On the other hand, you know, Kenya has 47 counties and the chief justice, you know, always said, I'm building all these courts in, and, you know, his mandate was to uh, make sure that there was a high court in every single uh, county. And he would say, I'm building all these courts, but, you know, the reality of it is that um, most Kenyans resolve their disputes in uh, informal uh, systems and use alternative justice mechanisms. So, you know, to that extent, you know, I, I, I'm running out of time, but, you know, it really is, is important uh, to see that, um, you know, that both systems work in tandem and, you know, all the speakers have uh, really reiterated that. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks, Tatiana, but you've added another layer of, you know, clarity to how actually we can really work, you know, to get the two systems to interact But Thank you. I thought that was really, really um, powerful. Um, one set of players we haven't talked about yet is development actors. So I'll come to Margaret to reflect on that because you know, surely there is a role they can play or maybe that they shouldn't play. But what can development partners do? What are they doing or you know, what they can do differently to approach the entire justice ecosystems and support um, CIJs as well as you know, the former um, justice system to deliver an SDG 16.3? Thank you, Sarah. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. So from a, a development actor's perspective, uh, what are we doing and what should we do more or uh, differently? So what are we doing? Um, as we know, even before the pandemic, as everybody here um, knows that one and a half billion people across the world didn't see their justice needs fulfilled. And since then, since the pandemic, that number has only grown. So the Netherlands has been a very strong promoter of people-centered justice, where people's justice needs are the starting point for finding solutions. And taking that people-centered approach forces us to do, first of all, find solutions that are evidence-based and data-driven, so to better understand where the different justice needs are. So for instance, Hill, through his research, has learned us, helped us to identify that in Tunisia, uh, Employment-related disputes are among the most prevailing legal problems, whereas in Mali, people have most disputes around land. And solutions also need to be found beyond, beyond the formal justice systems, um, obviously. Informal justice can play a very important role. Even in the Netherlands, only 4% of legal problems is addressed in courts. So often informal and customary justice is more accessible and trusted uh, than the formal systems, and we've learned many examples. Um, examples that we have supported is, for instance, paralegals in remote areas in Mali that provide legal advice and dispute resolutions with local leaders. Um, and in Somalia, with our partners UNDP and IDLO, uh, we're working to bridge the gap between the formal institutions and alternative dispute resolution close to communities. So what should we do more or differently? I think first, uh, we need to become better at looking at justice ecosystems as a whole and to listen better to what people really need. So systems and today again demonstrates that they're very context specific. There's often a lack of understanding amongst international players 
and actors about the nature of informal justice systems, relations with the formal systems and their impact and constraints. Secondly, we have to better monitor human rights compliance and equal access and treatment by informal and customary justice mechanisms, particularly for women, youth and minorities. Um, already we explicitly request partners working in countries with traditional or informal justice systems to respect international agreements and human rights when they are delivering programs supported by the Netherlands. And this is also under scrutiny by our parliament. And the third thing we have to do better is coordinate, coordinate better and scale successful approaches, approaches that work. Because collectively we can obtain a better understanding of the potential of informal systems to significantly increase access to justice for all, to build on local mechanisms that are already in place and scale interventions that work. So we're very happy with this working group that you initiated, uh, Sarah, uh, on customary and informal justice. Um, we will also be taking this subject forward as a work stream in the Justice Action Coalition that we initiated. That's a coalition launched by G7 Plus, the Elders and the Center for International Cooperation with the aim to advance people-centered justice. Um, and we think that today and further meetings really can help to align our actions and initiatives to exchange ideas and to learn from each other so that we indeed can scale up our efforts and fill that gap of justice needs, which is still vast and enormous. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Marriott. And yes, let's definitely make sure that this dialogue continues you know, across this multitude of actors, because the, I think we're gonna make progress if we work across, you know, if you want, silos or uh, traditional areas of engagement, because we really need the efforts of everyone to close the, the global justice gap. Um, this has been an incredibly fantastic first round of uh, interventions. Mariet, I know you need to leave us in about um, 10 minutes, but uh, um, for, we do have about 25 minutes to open to the Q&A, and there are already a lot of questions that have come in. Um, so I'll start with some of the, the questions in, uh, um, in, in the Q&A. There are others in the chat. I probably won't be able to, um, to take all of them, but let's see how many. If you brief in your uh, replies, we can try and bring in all the questions that uh, um, have been put. So I'll, I'll come with the first one to um, Justice King um, is both for Justice King or Ms. Hussain, but maybe um, let's start with uh, Justice King and then Sarah, if you want to, to add um, anything, please do. As CIJ systems tend towards conservatism and reinforcement of patriar patriarchal power relations in many contexts, what are some of the ways we've seen women in power to engage with and demand equality and accountability from CIJ providers? Are there any insights or practices that might be transferable? We've touched a little bit on this. Maybe we can add um, a little bit more, but briefly, please, so that we, I can get to um, other questions. Thank you, Sarah. I think that um, raising awareness about people's rights, empowering women to understand their rights, and also with um, the parliament, because for us in Sierra Leone, indeed, where we have a patriarchal system and women have been discriminated for quite a long time, but immediately following the war, 
women occupied spaces to advocate for changes in the law. And we've had changes in the law in respect of, we had for the first time a domestic violence law. We've had changes in the law in relation to customary marriages and divorces, recognizing them. But it was actually the parliament passing laws overriding discriminatory customary laws and practices and creating offenses for those who would still want to go back to discriminatory customary laws and practices. But it is important that women know about the laws. It is important that also these um, um, personnel manning local courts are also aware of these laws. And it's also a, a, a question of the country having a commitment to make that change to ensure that the rights of women are respected and protected. So I think there's, there's been so many legal changes in the law and that has helped to create that awareness and respect for women's rights in the system. Thank you. Thanks, Jamesina. Um, Sarah, there are other questions. So maybe I'll come to you with some other questions so let's, and, and then you know, integrate also an answer to this, but I just want to use the time to get to as many questions as possible. Um, uh, Zamira, there's a question for you. What challenges have women faced in asserting their leadership in Kyrgyzstan's Aksakal system? Are there lessons that can be drawn from the experience of Kyrgyz women as justice dispensing elders that might be applicable elsewhere? Give it a minute for the translation to come through. Да, слышу, слышу. Да, у нас судья Аксакалов тоже избирает и женщины. Yes, um, our Aksakal courts actually have women represented, and uh, it was back in 2013. Uh, concept of uh, general equal uh, of uh, gender equality was introduced and since that time a number of women are appointed uh, as uh, members of the Aksakal court and uh, therefore uh, because the number of issues can be resolved essentially by uh, only by women and uh, they are much deeply deeper involved in certain aspects of the cases brought to the attention by Aksakal courts. And sometimes women even uh, elected uh, to be chairs of such Aksakal courts. And uh, um, some people even are very much surprised how in traditional society, a woman can be a chair of the court or supreme uh, justice of uh, the Aksakal court. Because uh, uh, normally the traditional uh, understanding of what the chair must be, it's an uh, old uh, male with a long white beard. Uh, but uh, but the Aksakal uh, means in our language, the elder uh, and uh, an old and uh, experienced person. And, uh, but women normally um, uh, have a better understanding of, of, of certain issues, especially when uh, the uh, women are involved as uh, claimants and defenders, and particularly in family relationship, uh, in 
so the uh, predominant mentality of the local community is such that uh, women normally are more willingly talk to women and uh, are reluctant to share their problems with the male uh, uh, exocals. Uh, so, and uh, primarily uh, the women for um, exocal courts are recruited from the urban population uh, as well as from the rural areas. Thank you very much, Zamira. In the two minutes before you're going to leave, Marit, just one question that I think would be good for you to address from Lisa Denny, who asks, given the relevance and the value of CIJ, how can we raise its profile and motivate the global justice community and I would add also the development community to pay greater attention to CIJ, not just as an afterthought to former systems? Um, it's a very, very good point, but I think, you know, it is all about impact. As I said, you know, the, the justice gap is so enormous that we have to do better um, if we are serious about delivering on SDG 16.3. Um, and then I think there's a bit of a risk that we may see customary and informal justice as a silver bullet, or bullet is the wrong word in this context, but anyhow, you get what I mean. Um, because there's also many ifs, I think, and they've been highlighted as well. But given the fact that the informal and customary systems is really the main channel for people to, you know, the opportunity they have, if we fix it right and support it in the right way, and by well understanding the system and the interactions with the formal system, I think that's the only, it's the most important and powerful tool, I think, that we have to deliver on access to justice for all. So we just have to increase the sense of urgency, I would say. Oops, sorry, it was me. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, uh, Marita. Thanks for squeezing this in, um, you know, just before you need to go. Um, Sarah, I wanted to come back to you with what is a really long question in the chat, but I'll just read the, the final bit, um, asking, you know, how if panelists can give examples as to how they've challenged discriminate, discriminatory practices and or institutions. And then, you know, of course, um, do reflect on the previous question as well. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I, let me reflect on the previous question. Actually, I just kind of wrote an answer to that. But I think some of the ways that we engage at, in two levels, to engage on the kind of supply side, if you like, um, the process of providing justice solutions. So that means in terms of the community justice systems, um, one is in, trying to redress the power imbalances there. So ensuring that the the decision makers or the arbitrators or those doing dispute resolution are from a more diverse group. Our practices have been, have been to try and ensure, firstly, of course, that women are part of that group, but also the very interesting innovations happening by a number of organizations in Bangladesh to ensure that people from marginalized groups are there. So in BLAST, for example, we work with many hijra communities, and there are now paralegals within those hijra communities who are themselves trained to provide legal advice and support, and in some cases to take part in dispute resolution as well. Uh, I think the other aspect that's very important, though, if um, community systems are going to be a 
accountable is that people have to be able to know how they operate, see how they operate and call them out when there are problems created because we're very aware of the kinds of problems that can happen. Um, so I wanted to give an example that we had in Bangladesh where community systems which went ran riot in terms of imposing so-called fatwas and imposing degrading punishments on women and on men, but mostly on women, were ultimately questioned by the Supreme Court and questioned on the basis of invoking you know, constitutional standards around um, freedom from cruel and degrading treatment, equal protection, gender equality, and so on. So I think we have to be aware of the fact that you know, we are most of us operating within constitutions that guarantee fundamental rights and equality is an absolutely basic fundamental gender equality in particular, um, that there are international standards in play. I think we can't, we can't push those to one side. So I think the advocacy and the engagement around reinvoking what that framework is while working inside the system to also increase um, representation and diversity within the, the community processes um, and I think holding them to the point that they also have to evolve, you know, that they can't be stuck in wherever they are. They have to evolve within this framework of plurality, but also within a framework of equality. I think those have been some of the approaches that have been useful. Thank you very much, Salim. Just so that the question in the chat was from Gita Sakal. Thanks, Gita. Um, there's another question in the Q&A from Martin Gramatikov, and maybe Atina will ask you to address this one. Um, for obvious reasons, informal and customary justice is significantly more popular and trusted in rural communities. Do you see functional substitutes of informal and customary justice in urban settings? Thank you for that question. Yes, actually, within the Kenyan context, um, a lot of um, uh, and a, a survey had been done on uh, looking at uh, alternative justice mechanisms, and they did find that even within uh, urban settings, especially in informal urban settings, uh, the uh, um, uh, customer and informal justice mechanisms are are used there. So um, again, within the context of Kenya, you find uh, that each region, each ward does have a chief, and these chiefs. Are are, uh, are 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 people are, are the ones that people go to 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 get um, uh, uh, disputes resolved. So it is actually a very functional um, uh, a very functional uh, system of justice uh, within urban settings. It doesn't it's not uh, predominantly in in the rural areas. And you actually have um, other systems that we uh, there's one called the uh, Nyumba Kumi. This is whereby uh, different neighbors get together and uh, hold each other accountable and look out for each other and within those systems themselves um when 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 disputes uh, do arise uh, they are they're they resolved within those uh, within those conclaves so i think for sure within um informal settlements um, um and and in areas that are uh, where marginalized uh, uh, people are living um you also have churches and other religious institutions that are uh, resolving disputes within these settings. So yes, there are functional disputes and some are even actually uh, formally recognized uh, by the court systems. Thank you so much, Atieno. Um, Vicky, I'll come to you for the next question. Um, 
So the question says, I wonder if any of the panelists have observed cases where the customary justice systems or leaders have been responsible for delivering other types of community services, for instance, services that go beyond the focus on dispute resolutions. And perhaps you can address that by in you know, sort of thinking of indigenous governance actors. Yeah, well, uh, yes, I'll answer that. But uh, maybe before I go there, I just wanted to add to the question about how we are dealing with some uh, practices which might be uh, in conflict with international human rights law. And I just wanted to mention that one of the ways we would do is to really organize the, the people themselves, the women. In our case, we organize the women and our communities and uh, they were the ones who changed some of the customary laws, which are not, which are discriminatory to them. Like, for instance, bride price. You know, there is a practice of paying for, uh, you know, to to have uh, to get a bride. You no, know, and uh, and dowry, the payment of dowry. And the women who were whom we organized were the ones who actually changed the customary law and challenged the justice authorities that that this cannot uh, prevail. So I think a key key. Uh, step should be to organize, you know, these people so that they will know what their human rights are and demand changes in their own customary systems when they see that these are not pr protecting them. Uh, well, the other roles that justice authorities do in communities, uh, you, in, 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 in several cases in, in Latin America, they are also the governance authorities, no? Usually they're also the ones who are uh, uh, running the, the autonomous government. No, and uh, and so they have uh, dual roles. But in other uh, in other uh, indigenous communities, of course, they are uh, as was mentioned by somebody earlier, uh, the mediation, uh, the mediation and a uh, conflict transformation work is also done by them. No, they they go out of their way to really bring about bring the uh, uh, the conflicting parties together. In my case, in our case, we have peace pack holders who are the ones who are also justice authorities, but they are the ones who forge peace packs with the neighboring uh, uh, tribes whenever there are conflicts that emerge. So I just wanted to mention that, and I have to uh, say goodbye as well because I have to run to another meeting. Thank you so much, Vicky, for being with us and for all your incredibly powerful um, contributions. Um, I, we've got just about seven minutes. Let's see if I can sort of squeeze in another two questions. Um, Juan, I'll come to you with the next one. Um, what are, are there any negative effects linked to recognizing CIJ in a constitution? And can you provide any example? Sure, there are. I mean. It is good that they are recognized. It's much better that they are recognized than that they are not. But there are risks as well. One of the risks is that they can dilute and annul the system by itself. And it comes from the fundamental misunderstanding of what the system is. The, the customary justice system among many communities, the dividing line between justice and healing is blurred. I mean, the elder, the person that knows, is both the person that heals disputes in the community, but also heals physically, like the, the, the medicine man sometimes. In, some, um, in Colombia, some indigenous communities are like that. And uh, among the Kogi Indians, for instance, they called us, the, let's say the Western type of persons in, in the country, uh, the little brothers, because we do not know. They know better. Uh, and, and to some extent, you, you speak with them and they do know better about many things, about the way the planet is working. So, the recognition that our, let's say, the international system also doesn't work, that we have a justice gap of half a billion, I mean, 
half the population of the world is, does not have full access to justice. And uh, um, the degree of recognition in the constitution to the extent that it acknowledges something as weird and other, there is a risk of annulling it. And that may happen with the multicultural paradigm, accepting, and this again moves case by case, that the interaction and the different cultures speak to each other is a case by case adaptation that's a lot more complicated. So it depends a lot on how you and, and I adapt it to the constitution. And of course, we could speak 10 hours on that, but we don't have time. So I'll stop there. It could go on all day, but um, I saw that Atino was also typing some comments on this. And Atino, I'll ask you to also perhaps address um, the other question is in the chat, which is what could be some of the ways to scale the practices of community providers? How can standardized tools be created without losing the diversity of uh, local practices? Sarah is also tapping an answer to that. And I think that would be the last question. So I want to make sure that we have um, some time for uh, for Jan to share her final um, remarks. Uh, Robert, I see, I saw you just added um, some comments and I don't know if uh, any of the speakers want to address that in writing, that would be great. But um, Athena and Sarah, since you were already typing answers, please share your answers. And then I'm afraid that will be all we'll have time to for the, for the debate. Um, sorry, should I speak, Sarah? Whether Atena go first or Sarah go first, you were no, no, I'll, keep, I'll, keep, to the I'll keep typing. Let Atena speak. Okay. I was actually going to suggest that Sarah go first because I was actually not typing. But let me see if I can answer this question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that um, uh, you know, some of the standardized tools, and this is something that, you know, the Kenyan constitution does say is that, you know, that uh, the recognition of, of uh, traditional uh, dispute uh, resolution mechanisms should be embraced, but then have to uh, remain within the ambit of uh, the Bill of Rights and uh, with, and as long as they're not repugnant, uh, for example, to human rights uh, norms. So I would say that the standardized tools should be what are the human rights norms that, uh, that you know, that we all adhere to, and then um, you know, continue to use those even within the cultural context and within the uh, uh, lo uh, uh, local practice context. But I think, you know, the, the, for me, the constant north has always been uh, and will continue to be the, um, the uh, uh, international uh, human rights norms. Thanks, Atino. Sarah? Yeah, I want to com completely wholeheartedly agree with that. And just in terms of scaling, I think there has to be some caution. Um, because it's really important that if we are going to respect those norms, that there has to be understanding of those norms by those who are part of the process of scaling. And I think it's risky for us to just say, scale it up, it's cheap, it's fast, it's effective. We need to be more thoughtful about it. Um, and I think the one way to do that is to put the investment into engaging with communities. Um, and I think this point that Robert is making is really interesting, that look at what are the positive aspects within our court system. So not just go straight down to the ground, do everything in the community, but look at what are the processes for informal resolution within court systems, within, for example, city. I was going to put in an idea that's being generated here at the moment, that how do you use cities and, city, um, cities and municipalities to do dispute resolution within their own processes? So looking at how you build that, I think, into formal structures could be another way to go, rather than over-romanticizing, I think, only the community. 
what a rich and insightful discussion. Thank you, everyone. John, I don't know how you're going to bring this all together, but really over to you for your reflections and closing remarks. I'm sure you agree that this has been incredibly um, fulfilling. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And uh, as we bring this event to a close, first of all, let me first extend a, a warm thanks to you as, as our chair and, and to ODI for hosting this very timely and, and rich discussion. Uh, today, we celebrated the public debut uh, of the working group and launched its ambitious uh, joint action plan. Um, this, this plan really does, I think, offer us a comprehensive roadmap to guide future support to customary and informal justice systems and to close the SDG 16 plus implementation gap in the lead up to the 2023 summit. And across today's discussions, I think we heard a very common message, both from the panel and from all of those who intervened uh, in the chat. And that message uh, repeated again and again was that access to justice for all and SDG 16 cannot be achieved without effective and strengthened engagement with customary and informal systems. And I think this is why the mandate of the working group is absolutely crucial. And IDLO is pleased to be a member um, of this really important initiative. Um, for over a decade now, I would say that IDLO has been a pioneer, perhaps, in research and programming on customary and informal justice. And our dedication to this issue is founded on a simple fact, that we cannot achieve the goal of justice for all by 2030 without making customary and informal systems part of the solution. And I'll just allow me to share briefly three insights from our experience on why this initiative is so important. And I believe that um, our experience has really been borne out by what we've heard uh, today. First, realizing equal access to justice for all requires engaging with the systems that most people, and especially the poorest and most excluded groups, already turn to. So as we know, customary and informal justice systems enjoy high levels of use and acceptance in the communities where they're rooted. And in order to reach the targets of SDG 16, all justice stakeholders need to recognize the legitimacy of these systems and integrate them into broader efforts to achieve justice for all. Secondly, uh, engaging strategically with customary and informal justice systems is essential to ensure greater respect for human rights, because we know that in some contexts, these systems can perpetuate structured discrimination, unequal power relations or harmful practices, particularly with respect to women and girls. So linking these systems to formal justice systems and in particular providing capacity building and other support can help to protect the rights and interests of marginalized and vulnerable groups. And this brings me to my third point. We need to pay particular attention to the rights of women and girls in customary and informal systems uh, if we are to make progress on SDG 5. Some of the most common justice issues that women face, inheritance and property disputes, gender-based violence, among others, are resolved or adjudicated through informal systems and they must be gender responsive. So in conclusion, IDLO is, is a proud member of the global coalition working towards a more people-centered approach to justice. We believe we have a unique opportunity now to reimagine and redesign justice systems 
that are grounded in a better understanding of people's justice needs. And I heard um, someone today say we need to listen better, and I would really agree with that. But we need a better understanding of the needs and of the diverse pathways by which people seek to resolve disputes. And as we've heard today, engaging with customary and informal justice systems is clearly an essential part of this effort. I think it's great to see the level of enthusiasm and energy uh, here today. And IDLO is committed to working with you through our programs, our research and our policy advocacy uh, to achieve our shared objective of ensuring access to justice for all. And I thank you very much, Sarah, and thanks to all of the panelists and everyone who has participated in this really, really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, John, and really thank you to IDLO for all the work you've done and you continue to do to put you know, customer and informal justice at the center of you know, these efforts um, of the global justice agenda. So we, have, we all have a sort of a, a debt of gratitude for your efforts that you continue to push and in many ways for also you know, the energy that you're putting behind the working group. Um, and I want to thank all, uh, all those who have joined the discussion today, of course, all the panelists, but also everyone who has attended, has put questions, uh, comments in the chat. It really shows the, you know, how vibrant this community is. Um, advancing human rights, justice and inclusivity is also at the heart of ODI's new five-year strategy, which we launched earlier this year. So we're really honored to um, be, be part of the working group and you know, to be part of a sort of hosting this very important and timely dialogue today. So I hope that all of you will continue to support the working group, to engage in the working group, um, and really, you know, help the working group as it seeks to broaden the way people-centered justice is pursued and ensure that it really takes the lived experience of people around the world as its starting point. So I encourage all of you to look at the working group's webpage. I hope someone will put it in the chat and join its membership so that we can amplify our efforts. But thank you once again to all our incredible speakers and to all of you for joining today. And we have two years of work to do before we can get to the um, appointment in September 2023 for Agenda 2030. But with that, really big thank you and hope there's a good um, sort of um, progression for the rest of your week. Thanks everyone.